All right, hello and welcome to another 3NR podcast. This is Scott Phillips. I'm joined by James Herndon, uh, the director of debate at Emory University, and Whit Whitmore, uh, the director of debate at Michigan as well. How are you all doing? Pretty good. Doing well. Doing well. All right, so Whit, why don't you introduce our first topic since you were the one who brought it to my attention. All right, uh, so I guess the more general concept is um, – is it possible for the affirmative to impact turn new block impacts to the politics disadvantage, or I guess uh, any disadvantage, after they have read link turns to that disadvantage in the 2AC? Um, uh, and I guess maybe to give the viewers here a little uh, context for uh, how this issue arose, um, one of the Michigan teams that uh, I coach uh, was in an elimination round debate at the UNLV tournament recently, and uh, they attempted such a maneuver um, uh, impact turning a new uh, scenario that the block had read after they had read link turns in the 2AC, and they uh, lost the debate on a 2-1 decision uh, with uh, pretty much the debate coming down to the question of whether or not this was legitimate, um, uh, and this kind of like sparked an internal team debate about whether it's a legitimate practice or not, um, uh, and we had quite a few uh, thoughts about that. Who was the uh, Who were the two ones? Uh, this uh, round was adjudicated by uh, Greta Stahl, Gordon Stables, and Duan Chung. Oh, that's, I mean, that's and a, Greta and good. Gordon decided that it was not uh, kosher, I guess, to uh, impact turn, and Duan said, "Yes, uh, you can read the impact turns in the one AR." What is the, can you tell me, well, without tipping my hat, what are the reasons why you can't do that? Well, I believe the the reason that uh, Greta and Gordon voted on, and this is sort of like, I was not there for the post-round discussion uh, because I was adjudicating another round, um, was that uh, the 2AC by reading link turns has made a strategic decision to advocate that the the jobs bill was the particular scenario uh, in this round was, um, uh, in fact, a bad thing. It was a winner's win scenario um, uh, that says you lead to the jobs bill. That's bad. It crushes pharma, uh, which is key to prevent disease and bioterror. And um, so by link turning, you have conceded that uh, passage of the jobs bill would, in fact, be a bad thing. And that by reading impact turns, you are then going against yourself in the 1AR by saying that the jobs bill is bad. Okay. I just, I mean, if the negative reads new impacts, the affirmative obviously has the right to answer those impacts, even if they didn't engage in the impact debate in the 2AC. So if they read new stuff, they get the right to answer it. One of the right. many ways to answer things is through turns. But I'd say, I'd, I'd say 100% ask can do that. Right. Uh, sort of the, some of the arguments that, um, we talked about uh, to defend this sort of practice uh, is that because it was a new impact, of course, uh, always the affirmative should be allowed to respond to that impact. Um, uh, and that, of course, it does strategically alter the debate, um, uh, but also reading new impacts in the block also strategically alters the debate. Um, uh, and so there should be some degree of reciprocity there uh, in terms of like the AF's response to those things. Also, um, I question the, the notion of inconsistency or whatever, because one, the disadvantage was not straight turned. So at no point in time did the affirmative say, or choose to defend absolutely that the jobs bill was a good thing. Like impact defense was read, things like that. Uh, internal link defense was read. So, because it wasn't straight turned, at no point did we take like an avid stance on the jobs bill itself, I would say. Uh, and there's maybe a distinction to be drawn there, as well as the fundamental thesis of the negative argument is that it's illegal or, I guess, against the debate rules to double turn yourself, which is not, in, in fact, true. Uh, teams double turn themselves all the time. It's just a question of whether it's strategic or not to double turn yourself. And in some instances, it may be, such as this one, strategic to read link turns and impact turns at different points in time in the debate. Uh, I think that the the, neg the negative may have a stronger case in the event where, um, say, the 2AC did straight turn the disadvantage 
uh, and then chose later on to impact turn it, uh, that might um, have made a, a difference, I think. Scott, what are your thoughts? I mean, I uh, Wit sent out like an email about this, and I thought about it for a while because it didn't. It's kind of like my gut reaction was you can't do that, but I can't really come up with like a logical explanation for why I feel that you shouldn't be able to do that. Like, were I debating someone right now and they were to do that, I would not really have a coherent explanation for why they shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah. I mean, it seems like the negative, once they've read Link Turns, it's just being stupid reading a new impact and that there should be some strategic cost for being stupid that way. Yeah, and, and otherwise, just read a read a random impact, so something like the jobs bill, which is the economy, right? And then if the 2AC reads a Link Turn, which, come on, let's be honest, 99% of the time they read a Link Turn, doesn't that incentivize the one in R as being like, they've already linked turned, so they can't impact turn any of this stuff. So new prolif impact, new hedge impact, new, uh, you know, terrorism impact, new disease impact, just just a litany of arguments. Like they don't get offense against any of these. Or and, and not just like any impact, it would arguably justify the negative reading. Um questionable impacts that would just don't make any logical sense like if they were to read like a racism good uh impact to the um to the to the disad and then say oh no you can't question it because um you have cons- you've read link turns so you can't question our racism good impact it it just seems rather silly and encourages sort of negative sandbagging of questionable impacts like that that are particularly ripe to be impact turned until the block well, what if, let's say the AF just reads like a regional war impact in their 1AC, and the 1NC impact of the disad is similarly some non-extinction impact. If the block then reads an extinction impact, can the 1AR read wipeout? Uh, the first time extinction has been introduced in the debate is... The block. The block? The 1AR. Yeah. If it's the 2AC... Then the block can do it. Yes, I believe you always have the right to answer an impact, either with defense or offense. And I, for the life of me, cannot wrap my head why defensive answers are okay, but offensive answers aren't okay. And this brings up a, another issue that I think became a question amongst the debaters and the judges, and it it's somewhat baffling to me. I don't really understand it. Um, and again, I'm just relying upon what my debaters conveyed to me. I wasn't there for the decision, but that there is a distinction to be made between, for instance, in this particular instance, we chose to um, uh, internal link turn the new impact of the economy, i.e. reread cards that the jobs bill would be favorable for the economy to answer their arguments that the jobs bill would crush the economy. Um, uh, and one of the judges said, you know, if you had chose to like DDEV this impact, that would have been okay, but it's not okay to read turns at the level of whether or not the bill is good or not, um, which didn't seem to make a ton of sense to me uh, because all sort of impact turns are really internal link turns. It's just a question of where along the chain of internal links it occurs. So like the only real terminal impacts are things like death and extinction and stuff like that. So uh, saying economic collapse good is just as much of an internal link turn as saying that the jobs bill is good for the economy. It just occurs at a different spot. Um, uh, and so that distinction made by the judge uh, really made no sense to me whatsoever. Well, actually, I think that does make some sense because DDEV is grandfathered in under NFL rules. You can actually read that in any speech at any time. <laughs> Oh, I, I see. I, know that, I see. I need to. I need to think about this because I hear you say that it doesn't make sense. But when you were explaining it, a little part of me was like, "Oh, that is different." Uh, so let me just just throwing it out here now. The block or the one AR could have said jobs bill bad for the economy based on what the one can see had said. Right? So they had already had the position to read that, and they chose not to read that. Correct, yes. Hmm. Well, I don't know if that makes any sense or not, why you wouldn't be able to read it, because that's obviously an answer. If they're like, jobs bills, also terrible for the economy, the most direct answer to that is, no, it's not. He's got that backwards. It's pretty terrible for it. We're no longer forwarding our link turns. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board. You get to do that. Absolutely. 
I mean, it seems like the judges are essentially saying the 1NC advanced the, like, meta-level argument that the jobs bill was bad. And so at the point where in the 2AC you did not say the jobs bill was good, you have kind of foreclosed any chance to do that. Am I wrong? But I I don't know why the, the, the route is necessarily foreclosed, especially when it's specifically context, like in the context of an impact that they read that the jobs bill would be key to the economy. Like that was not a question in the debate, like the relevance of the jobs bill to the economy. Um, sure, we didn't have any evidence on the relevance of the job bill to the pharmaceutical industry, um, uh, and so we didn't choose to do that. Uh, but so I don't know that you can say that we made a decision about the grand scheme of the jobs bill uh, at any point in the debate, given that we didn't straight link turn uh, the disadvantage. So is the affirmative limited then to only reading turns about the economy? They can't introduce any new jobs bill arguments? Right. I think that if we had read like maybe external impact turns like jobs bill or it's good for other reasons that maybe that was that would be more questionable, um, but I, yeah. this, in this case it was a direct answer to the new impact add-on, um, uh, which I think would increase the legitimacy in that instance. I could probably be sold either way on their right to, to introduce new like job bill good for X Y Z unrelated to any previous impact and of those. Uh, I, I could be sold, but that's illegit. Um, really? So, just to, let me make sure what I'm defending here. One and C reach this job still this had with a disease impact. Two AC link turns reach disease defense. One uh, neck block says add on job still kills the economy. One AR. Uh, says, nope, that's bad for the economy, and also, the jobs bill stops ProLift, and ProLift is bad. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm sold either way, I'm just saying that that introduction of the new ProLift debate in the 1AR, I could see given logic that was talking about why that's not allowed, because that is expanding the debate in a way that the 2AC already foreclosed the right to engage in by link turning. But then again, it just, if the negative was like, they've changed the calculations of the debate, they've introduced the economy, we should have the right to not just debate the economy, but also introduce prolif and other things to challenge that impact calculus. I'm just saying I don't that think, I think that's, that's a debate. I don't think the link turning of uh, of the disad and the two AC is what forecloses the ability of reading, say, like a new prolif impact turn. I think the the fact that it's just the one AR and new arguments are not allowed unless they are responding to block arguments. So, like, I don't know that there's a logical. Um, a tie-in for why you get the prolif impact turn because they read an economy impact. Um, that it, that just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Like why that is necessary. I think that um, definitely they have to be allowed to engage any new impacts, including reading impact turns. Um, but I, I don't I don't necessarily see why new external impact turns should be allowed because it's the one AR. Well, what if the AF said? And prolif hurts the economy. Does that make it relevant then? Um, no, I don't. I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, it seems like it's pretty tough to draw a bright line here. It seems like if they're allowed to read new stuff, they're allowed to read anything. Um, I don't know. That one's uh, that. I think that's a, that's an entirely different situation. Oh man, Judge Scott, Judge Scott, like because that's exactly what every debate became. I think that would be sweet if that's what every <laughs> debate became. <laughs> you just impact turn random parts of cards that the other team wasn't ready to defend. Uh, I think debates should just start with the one AR. Mm -hmm. The neg should just get ten seconds to name an impact, <laughs> and then the AF has to impact turn it. Nice. We get to go to dinner at like three p.m. It would be sweet. But, the, but see, what you would do is you would wait for the other team to not name the impact, but name the impact cards like uh, Kalilazad 95. And it'd be like, it's got to be like, we're impact turning the non-underlined part of this card that says that hedge is good for democracy with democracy bad. Or Meet 92 says it would involve Japan, Japan instability good. So what if what if the AF did... Meet 92 just says China, Russia, India. I don't really... <laughs> 
Okay, nerdlingers. Um, <laughs> what if the the neg didn't read like didn't intend to read an economy impact, but read an extension card of their original impact, and mm-hmm. then in the part they underlined was also like, and by the way, the jobs bill is bad for the economy. Could you get to turn that? Can you restate Bagel. that? Okay, so they said whatever dumb impact they said. Jobs bill solves platypus extinction or whatever. <laughs> right. And then you read some defense, and now they wanted to read an additional impact card to support their 1NC impact, but it just so happened that in a, in a part they read that was underlined, it also said the jobs bill affects the economy. So you get to turn that now, even though they didn't, like, introduce that new impact on purpose? Uh... Possibly. Shame on them for, like, reading an unnecessary card. Wow. Um, yeah, they do get the same back on that. Yeah, I mean, I can't really think of a reason why they wouldn't. Yeah. Agreed. I think we have uh, sufficiently beaten the dead horse that is this, and we're all in agreement. Oh, new 1AR impact turns are a very live horse. <laughs> that someone will ride to victory very soon. After. Yeah, just wait for them to cite the three R podcast. Uh, <laughs> says it's okay. Here they hear the new impact turn. People who listen to this podcast already know to impact turn everything. So <laughs> this this new podcast wasn't really the key to that. <laughs> um. All right. So moving on to the next issue then. Uh, Let's talk about international fiat. Uh, I know this is a big issue in college this year with the international assistance topic, and I've actually seen it in a lot of high school debates as well with, like, people reading the China counterplan, for example. Um, So I kind of had two specific questions for you all about this. Um, One was kind of like, what do you think the threshold has to be for the negative to claim they have a solvency advocate? Uh, So... A lot of teams just basically have evidence that, you know, China should expand their space program or China should uh, go and focus more on international space cooperation. If the AF has a really specific plan in order to win the counterplan is theoretically legitimate, do you think they have to have a piece of evidence that says they should do the exact mandates of the plan? Uh, I think that they would need some evidence that speaks to the capability perhaps to win that this counter plan was viable. Like this is probably more of a solvency question than a theoretical legitimacy question. Um, uh, in terms of theoretical legitimacy, it's perhaps enough to say that we have evidence that suggests that a country should expand its exploration of space, I guess, to make it contextual to the uh, high school debate community. Um, but definitely there needs to be some evidence that speaks to uh, the capability or maybe desirability of that country to do the specific mandates of the AFES. Yeah, going with something Witt said, if they don't have a piece of evidence that China can or should do the plan, then that should be a solvency deficit for the AF. In terms of theory, I think that they, this is like, the international fiat question comes down to whether there is a, is that something that a policymaker would consider? I mean, in my mind, that seems to have been the move for why international fiat is illegit, because there's no person who would decide between, you know, U.S. and China doing the space program. I think if the negative has evidence that challenges that question, that challenges whether there is a person deciding between the U.S. and Chinese space programs, that helps much more with the theoretical legitimacy than even a car that's like, hey, China should do your app. Um, and that happens in a lot of academic literature. It's happening in the U.S. There's a, and I'm sorry, in the college topic, there's a big discussion about the U.S. versus the EU and who does a better job of democracy assistance, and it's being debated amongst academics who talking about the benefits of each. And there were a couple of cards written post Obama's cancellation of the most recent projects that instead we should let the Chinese take over because the Chinese are doing it better and it's an international project and they've been willing to cooperate. And so there is evidence that speaks to the theoretical question of is this something that we should consider for policymakers? That's the part that needs to happen more than a specific piece of solvency evidence. 
Yeah, I, I agree that I think the nexus question of uh, of an international fiat debate is the is the policymaker question, um, and that seems to be where the the strongest affirmative argument lies. Um, I, I think there are some issues uh, theoretically with that line of argumentation, but it it does appear to be the strongest. Um, line of defense and that the sort of external questions like is there literature about different countries acting I think that um, the extent of the ability of the debate community to do research has um, kind of proven that we can find literature on just about anything when we put our minds to it um, uh, and so that kind of dispels the question about literature I don't know. I think Herndon kind of brought in some other issues here. That, like, no policymaker can choose between the two or whatever, I think that is just the dumbest argument ever. I, that, yes. I, I, I honestly have no idea why it. that's an argument. It's like, debate isn't exactly the real world. It's like, obviously. Well, there's no so, logical so policymaker. Like right? Why? Oh, Scott, yes, no. You like international fiat, or you think it's legit. I, I mean, I think that it, it could certainly be legit if I was to try and argue that it wasn't. The idea that no one can choose between the two is not an argument I would ever advance. Well, if you were winning this debate, or what's the best argument then for you? Well, I'd obviously be winning this debate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think the best argument is just kind of like the same, similar arguments for why picks are bad. Like, if they run the Japan counterplan and Japan soft power, the, the way the counterplan captures some of the case while fiating in uniqueness kind of artificially elevates arguments that are irrelevant to literature because no one would care about them into something that's relevant. Like, yeah. the, you would never spend any time researching the Japan soft power disad because Japan doesn't have a space program, so there's no way U.S. action would infringe on it. It's only the existence of the counterplan that makes that disad something that's relevant to the topic. And so that kind of creates a research disparity because the NAG only has to prepare one of those counterplans, um, and the AF has to try and prepare for the litany of potential ones. Okay. I, I think most people who feel strongly that international fiat is illegit, and you're probably like me, you know, who cares if you have counterplan cards and can win a DA and can defend it, go for it. I think most people who feel strongly do fall into that, like, oh, but the, the judge isn't in a position to make this decision because... It's not any real-world position-maker. I think those are the people who are, I hate international fiat. Yeah, Hernan's right. The the people who are going to check in for you on the affirmative for international fiat bad are the, like, rational policy-making hacks who think that that is, like, a solid line of argumentation. Um, like, and really the, the biggest problem I have with it is that the assumption that one person uh, has control over the United States federal government and could implement it uh, like, if you go back and read those theory articles that were written several years ago about this question, I think uh, Michael Corsak was the first one to introduce this notion of a rational policymaker, and Dallas Perkins just, like, shredded that uh, notion with the, like, we live in a government that where one person doesn't control things, there are multiple people, and so the notion that there is a logical policymaker who could make a decision about U.S. action is dumb to begin with. So when you begin from that sort of fantastical premise why, that one person could decide the U.S. federal government's policy, why not then extend that to uh, other federal or other uh, actors and governments throughout the world? Um, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense why we should give this magical person, this king of the United States, a power and not extend that power to other countries as well. Where can I find this uh, sweet Dallas Perkins literature? Uh, I think I can point you to a URL or something like that. Maybe I'll give it to Scott. He can put it in the like notes to this post or something like that. Yeah, that'd be sweet. I'd like to read that. I mean, I found the reference to rational policymaker and referring to them as a king to be profoundly gendered. But setting, <laughs> setting aside that, that momentary objection, I also just don't think the rational policymaker thing makes any sense in debate because, like, if the government were truly rational, 99.9% .9 of negative arguments wouldn't exist because they're all like, this won't work because people will screw it up or there's a trade-off. If well, yeah, everyone those was same doing lot, everything perfectly rational at all times, how could anyone ever object to the plan? 
those same logical policymaker hacks are also going to check in for your intrinsicness answers to all the disads too. Like, uh, like the same logic applies to like the logical policymaking argument that I guess is underwritten uh, conditionality and um, and the international fiat bad, the state's counterplan bad. Is also extends to intrinsicness theory, and a lot of people kind of just throw out the argument and make it, oh, a logic, logical policymaker wouldn't do these things, and they don't sort of assume the consequences of the utilizing that argument about a logical policymaker and what it extends to, and it has massive implications uh, for every aspect of the debate. Um, that, like you said, like it does negate the ability of the negative to get a disadvantage link in almost every instance. Well, the devil's advocate here, the argument that I hear is, well, I just don't know if I like debate in a world where there's not a coherent, consistent theory about what the ballot is and who the judge is. Thoughts on that? Well, clearly the role of the ballot is to withdraw from capitalism. I don't, I don't know why that's an <laughs> issue. I thought, I thought everyone universally agreed on that. I forgot that we had signed that uh, international agreement. I mean, yeah, I guess I just never really understood why the role of the judge isn't to be the, a judge in a college or high school debate round and vote for the team that did the better debating. Is that is that pretty like illogical? Oh, and the well, the the, the fantastic thing about this is that uh, if you read these sort of articles, is that the judge is not the policymaker. Um, uh, in fact, Corsock's article makes a very clear distinction between the role of the judge and the role of the policymaker. And it's not that the judge pretends to be the policymaker, but just imagines a policymaker taking an action uh, to do this sort of thing. And so the notion that, that these judges would say, oh, I'm uncomfortable unless I have the role of a rational policymaker kind of uh, goes against some of the fundamental presets that they're kind of attaching it to, um, because there is a distinction to be made between who the judge is and who the policymaker is. I love the notion that they're uncomfortable, like, oh, that's not quite comfortable here, deciding like that. <laughs> what does that mean? One thing kind of tangentially related to this that I think is hilarious, but... So in LD, the kids like derogatorily refer to people who read policy arguments as LARPers. Live like, action role play. Like Lord of the Rings in real life, they're called live action role playing. Like the kids from awful. Role Models. Uh, which just made me think of Herndon calling it Linky Dink. <laughs> linky Dinky. I love the Linky Dinky. Uh, we have a LDer on the Emory Squad the first year who. I was trying policy, and he was uh, he went for tea in this one debate, and he must have said jurisdiction at least forty thousand times. <laughs> this one hour about it was outside of jurisdiction, and all I could think in my head is good old Linky Dink. Do they still what? love jurisdiction over there? <laughs> my experience with LD debates are usually people yelling about jurisdiction. Okay. I've never heard the word jurisdiction uttered in Lincoln Douglas ever, mainly because they don't have tea, really. Or in the fact that you don't listen to the debates. Oh. What, which you. one of us um, doesn't listen to the Lincoln Douglas debates? Neither. So a similar argument is, so what if the counterplan, and I've heard this several times and it's taken off the popularity, Someone reads something, let's say a conditions counterplan, and all it does is condition the plan on something. And they include a plank that says, presumption still goes negative because we don't fiat the plan, we just fiat that we're conditioning the doing of the plan, which means it's less change. If they don't make a solvency deficit or we win, that it's as good as the AF, you vote nag on presumption. Thoughts about that? That's dumb. I mean, you're saying that particular argument or just the idea that the neg would advance presumption as a reason to vote for them? But neg forwards that as a reason to vote for the counterplan because it is less change. It's something I've heard in four separate debates for the past two college tournaments. I mean, I think like 1930s theory-wise, that is like a proper explanation of presumption. 
I always thought these arguments were kind of stupid because if it really came down to presumption, like you obviously screwed something up massively. But I think that a lot of judges are just so uncomfortable saying there's a winner and a loser in a debate that they look for these kind of tiebreaker framing arguments to just be like, oh, everyone in this debate was so perfect. It was so close. I couldn't resolve anything. You all are so good. Uh, so I voted on this tiebreaker that presumption goes nag because there was no other way to resolve this debate. Everyone in it was so good for 30s. I mean, does anybody else notice this trend? <laughs> I noticed that trend. Uh, more so in big high school tournaments. People yes. People are, like, so worried that if they tell someone they lost, they're going to, like, quit their t-ball team or something. I th- it's the same thing with the low-point win that infuriates me. It's like, I don't, want, I don't feel I'm able to defend my decision, so I'm going to start by announcing it was a low-point win so that you're not mad at me. I don't ever tell teams when it's a low point win. I, I think that's sort of they can find out when they get the ballot. Okay, why do you give out a low point win? There are often times where uh, a team sounds much better doing the debating, but they just like bone like one argument that is critical to the win. And I, for me, speaker points are more a reflection of aesthetics than like technical precision or anything like that. And so if I think that a debater sounded much better, even though they maybe made a technical error, I will reward them with speaker points, even though they don't get the win. I get low point wins when I think the 2A or the 2N were not as good and didn't win the debate, but the 1AR or the 1NR were much better than them and the loss wasn't necessarily their fault. I don't even know which one of you to yell at first. Uh, so, Wit, if I get up and sound pretty but say nothing of any value, I'm going to get a 30? It's not the say nothing. Like, obviously, no. There has to be some argumentative context uh, or content to your speech, rather. It's just that oftentimes I would say that if I were adjudicating this debate purely on who sounded the best – um, uh, and if I were maybe a young judge who was just voting on, you know, like gut instinct, I would probably vote for a certain team. But uh, maybe upon reading the evidence or going over and analyzing the, the, the arguments, the flow, it doesn't pan out that the team that sounded the best won the debate factually. Um, and that is what creates instances where there are low point wins for me. I think that's what caused Hitler to rise to power, just people not listening to the content but endorsing the form. No, I, I well, I, people people who made gut knee jerk reactions to people that sounded pretty is was what probably led to Hitler's rise. But uh, sound <laughs> logical weighing of arguments. No, I mean that's for speaker points. It's not for determining who won the debate. So like, yes, I may give some speaker points to someone who sounds pretty. Hitler may have gotten a thirty, but that doesn't mean he would win the debate. Okay, well here's why Wits contention falls apart. On the, NFL ballot, on the NFL ballot, one of the things that goes into the speaker points is refutation. So no one, no good, one checks boxes to determine who wins the debate or who gives speaker points. What? The the you're talking about the old school where there are like five criteria with or six criteria with five little boxes, and then you give them, you rate them on the box by each criteria, and then you total them up, and that's how you assign speaker points. The like old school method. Uh, well, much like you choose to pretend racism doesn't still exist, many of us still live in that old school world with those bad <laughs> ones. <with. laughs> that was ridiculous. That analogy was perfect. <laughs> I mean, you glossed over Wit saying he would give Hitler a 30. I, I said he may have gotten a 30, but he would not have won the speech. I don't think Wit is ever going to be allowed back to the Cannes Film Festival after comments <laughs> like that. Um, okay, well, I mean, it's clear Wit is just an irrational... Respond to mine, though. Let's jump from Wits at defense of his stupid practice to Herndon. So you basically, you'll give someone really high points because they're the person who didn't screw it up? No, no, no. Let's say you're judging a debate where the, you know, it's a high school round and the the 2A and the 2N, you know, someone's not giving both twos, but it's clear that one of them is a much better speaker and they're giving the 1AR. And the 1AC was great. The 2AC kind of messed everything up. They, you know, covered but barely. The 1AR was just amazing. Lots of reputation, evidence comparison. 
made the 2NR hard. Uh, the 2NR barely got it done. And the 2AR just kind of screwed it up and stuff like that. The, the negative was never very good, but the 2AR was just insufficient. The 1AR, though, was really great. Uh, and you thought, you know, she'd clearly be given the two and, you know, maybe just didn't have the partner to pull this debate out. I might give the partner, the 1A, like a 29, and then everyone else in the debate gets 27s. That's a low point win. But how does the 2A, after screwing up two whole speeches, get the same points as the negative who won the debate? Like, why aren't that okay. person's points just lower? Okay, but let's, let's say that I, because the negative was terrible as well, but the 1A, the 2AR, let's say I give them my, my floor, and the 2AR gets a 26, and then the two negative speakers get 27, or 27, 27, 5. That's still a low point win. Okay, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you've never given a low point win because three debaters hit your floor. Probably not. Okay, um, yeah. So let's throw out that absurd example. Hey, maybe not that absurd, but you, I mean, you don't have to use that absurd example. Maybe the 2A and Wit suggested this. Maybe the 2A just screwed something up and dropping an argument on the flow, and you punish them with bigger points for dropping one argument, or the 2N does, and the 2AR just focuses on that, but otherwise have been really bad in that debate. Or they sound really good, but their evidence is just bad on a certain question that happens to be a key question for the debate. I just don't know why that wouldn't hurt their points so badly that it wouldn't be a low point win. Because they read a bad piece of evidence, I would punish their speaker points? Yeah. Have you ever given a low point win, Scott Phillips? Not in a long time, because I realized that it was just not good. Hmm. Hmm. I'll to, I'm going to have to check some data. We're going to have to get Bill Batterman on this. <laughs> Look up debate results. Uh, all right. Well, it's clear you two are going to be irrational about this. Let's... You know, low point wins weren't on the list of topics for tonight. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Clearly, your thoughts <laughs> were that that they weren't well prepared. <laughs> um, but that's a nice little segue you created to research practices, which is another thing I wanted to talk about. Um, so a couple of questions related to this. One is, I, don't, I think for different reasons, it seems like both the college and high school topic, people are just reading evidence from terrible sources, uh, like the high school topic, because who writes about space, and the college topic is kind of like rapidly evolving, so there's not a lot of peer-reviewed literature on kind of current goings-on in the Arab Spring countries. So I guess I first question, do you think it's, let's say the the affirmative has a generic card about stability or instability in the region, in the Middle East, and the NAG has a better specific card uh, that's more recent, but from a questionable source. Do you think it's sufficient to just kind of like argue against the source in that instance? Like, can you discount the piece of evidence entirely based on where it's from? Uh, It depends on the source. Uh, I think that um, there are, if you can... Uh, and I've seen teams do a very good job of this this year in college. Uh, uh, I guess it's kind of like in vogue now to bring up a URL if it's a questionable source, and let's be honest that uh, most questionable cards are usually found on some obscure website or something, and they point to maybe uh, some other context of that web page that maybe gives you a clue that it's in some way biased, like is this... uh, a super hardline pro-Israeli website uh, that is going to speak in a certain way ab- about um, other Middle Eastern countries, um, uh, or is there some other attributable bias we can assign uh, to this author? And in that case, I think that it may be sufficient um, to discount it. Uh, but Isn't that like a logical fallacy, though? Perhaps, yes. Uh, but there are also cards... There are a lot of like well-educated, very intelligent people who blog regularly about Mideast affairs. There's a professor here at Michigan, a professor of history, Juan Cole, who writes uh, very frequently about the Middle East. And uh, to say that, oh, this is just a blog, so you should disregard it, I think, is not exactly true. And I, I wouldn't necessarily do that because it is 
um, a somewhat qualified individual writing, even if it hasn't been subjected to the process of peer review. If it is more recent, um, uh, kind of speaks to the current events that are developing, I may end up preferring that piece of evidence, even if it hasn't been subjected to peer review, over a piece of evidence from like 2010 that maybe was written before the Arab Spring ever happened. It's just another issue that people should use in comparing evidence. One of the bullet points of comparing evidence is quality of sources. If you're reading, uh, you know, empirical studies done by professors and lit-reviewed journals, you need to talk about that, compare that to whatever the blog is. Uh, even, I mean, even if it's a professor from some random Big Ten school that Wit has a job writing about stuff, it's still. You know, that doesn't mean it's as good as other stuff. Peer review comes into play, stuff like that. But, yeah, I could definitely, if, if some team read a DA and the link card was from, you know, angelfire.net slash find your link evidence here, I'd, I'd be more than willing to be like zero risk of a link if the other team pointed this out and made this argument. So, uh, segueing into question two, let's say that you're researching answers to the, an obscure critique argument, and the only kind of results you're getting are like, you know, bulletin boards of grad students, that kind of thing. Do you think it's even worth cutting evidence from that if that's the best source that you can come up with? Or do you just think you should steal their arguments and present them as analytics? Uh, something that I've seen done in some of the uh, – this exact same thing happened where uh, Nick Miller cut a card. I know, hard to believe, but Nick Miller <laughs> cut a card. Uh, and he was like, this is from a post. And then at the top of it, he's like, I actually think that you should make this argument because this person isn't qualified. But here's the card where they make the argument. And, and he talks right above it. just sort of like, I think that this evidence is of such low quality, but the argument is so good that you should just make the argument similar to how this person makes it and not waste your time reading the card in the debate. Isn't this the question of like the Robinson article against Lacan? Like, isn't that just some dude randomly blogging on his on his webpage about how he hates Lacanian theorists, uh, but it's been generally accepted, I think, by most debate people as a valid indict of uh, that line of psychoanalytic critiques. Well, there's definitely a journal article by Robinson, and I think he has a PhD, although maybe not from the University of Michigan. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess, I, that, to me, that seems stupid that we're so preoccupied with qualifications. It seems like if the person is able to articulate such a devastating argument, they have to have some level of intelligence. Well, yeah, and there's also an argument to be made that just the appeal to the authority of the author is also a, a, a logical fallacy as why the argument should be given content. Like, it should stand on its own merits absent who said it. Um, so, yes, but for some reason, judges do tend to think that qualification does matter uh, a lot and uh, kind of default to that over um, things such as sound warrants. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think appeal to authority is only a logical fallacy, though, if they're, like, not qualified. Like... If you read a card from a professor of economics on, like, a geography issue, that's a fallacy. But if it's, like, an economic issue, isn't their qualification relevant? Uh, no, I think not for the formulation. An argument should stand on its own um, uh, by its own merits. That's why we sort of, like, have blind peer review when we peer review articles. Like, you don't know who wrote the article um, when you submit it for peer review or when you're evaluating an article as a peer. And it's the detachment from the author is like, does this argument alone uh, on its own stand up? And that's sort of what we should use. We should not say, oh, this must be a true argument because it's attached to a professor or, or it's attached to someone who's been doing this for 40 years. You know, they could make a mistake. They could make a bad argument at some point in time. So to say that everything that this person has said is therefore true because they're qualified is sort of a logical fallacy. Um, uh, and that their arguments alone should should stand up to the scrutiny or the the test of uh, of counter arguments 
regardless of who they are as an individual. So you're, you're rolling just like Qual's irrelevant. To some extent, yes, but I, I don't. I, I think there is a very a minority of judges in the community who would agree with that statement. I, I don't think that that's a sound argument for you to advance in most debates. Okay, so it's, a, it's an argument that no one else agrees with. Well, I mean, I think that some people could perhaps be persuaded by it, but uh, it may be tough for a debater to try and advance that argument in a debate round because the the assumption that most judges operate under is that, of course, qualifications matter. I think the, the issue that I think is more important, Scott, is not so often it's like we, if there are two pieces of evidence and one's more qualified, you can engage in it. I think this is a more useful skill when it's more likely to occur, which is someone makes an argument for which the only piece of evidence they have is this terribly unqualified random blog where they've cut the card from, and then the other team obviously doesn't have cards because the answer, you know, the debate question is not something they've researched and stuff like that. So it's really debating non-qualified evidence versus non-evidence, and then it's and then it's a tough sell. You're saying it's a tough sell because people will just be like, eh, they have a card. Yeah, absolutely. Seen it a thousand times. See, I think that uh, most of the time when you see that, it's because the team arguing the card is unqualified aren't aggressive enough about it. They just kind of throw it out there and then roll over. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Teams that are good enough or have the moxie to just stand up and be like, this card is stupid, it's by someone relevant, it's a blog, give it no weight, and just stick to that as an argument are going to win those debates. But those teams are probably going to win a lot of debates anyway because it takes a lot of gumption. I think most teams... They're just sort of like, oh, no, they have a card, so we're in total trouble. We need a piece of the evidence for this. I've seen it a thousand times with random debaters, but great and, and poor. They're just like, well, we didn't have a card. It's like that's not really what we needed to win this debate. But uh, I, think I, think that, I think that it's possible to analytically undermine a piece of evidence that's written by an unqualified author, but maybe you shouldn't put all of your eggs in the basket of this author is unqualified to give a reasoned explanation to the judge about why the argument presented in the card is in fact false um, would be beneficial. And then that reasoned argument presented by the team in combination with an argument for why you should not prefer their evidence because of the lack of qualification is a particularly persuasive combo that I, I think a lot of judges could be persuaded by. I, I think there needs to be not solely this person is unqualified, but also, and here is why the argument they have presented is false, and that a lot of times teams will stop at the they're just unqualified and not present a coherent argument for why what the card says is wrong. Well, I guess to use like a famous example, if someone reads that card that's like, nuclear testing causes the core of the Earth to explode. How do you present a reasoned argument for why that's... I mean, I guess just empirics is the <laughs> Yes, there argument. have been hundreds and hundreds of nuclear tests that have not caused the Earth to crack. So you could assess the probability of this impact at almost zero. Well, I mean, zero. what if it's an event where there's no empirical data? If they're like U.S.-Russian nuke war causes aliens to come who make everyone blissful? Uh, well, I mean, that arguably, well, I mean, there have been nuclear weapons that were detonated in the past that, uh, like when we, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, wanted that not trigger uh, alien invasion? Um, why was there no attempt to stop those atrocities? Because uh, aliens only care about Russians. <laughs> uh, fair. Then maybe you could solely resort to the, uh, this is absurd. Uh, the author is unqualified there. Um, but I think in most instances, you should combine your indict of the author with or, a reasoned explanation. I think there are a few teams that are reading the Russian war good, leads to alien invasion, which is good. Uh, impact turns. Oh, well, there'll be more after this podcast, don't you agree? Thank you for that, Scott Phillips. Um, all right, so let's move on to the last 
It's a classic example, Scott, of where I think that you're, you got to stick to your guns. You got to be like, this is absurd. This person is clearly unqualified. And to, I guess if you incorporate wit stuff, it has to consist of, in my mind, nothing more than just sort of like, there's no way that this person could know this. Or we should assume that that's going to be true because they say they know that. It counts as telling me that the evidence isn't true, I guess. That's it. All right. Uh, on that note, then, let's move on to our last issue, uh, which we got a bunch of questions recently about non-framework strategies for dealing with performance AFs. Um, so do you all have any tips for those situations where I guess you, for some reason, don't want to go for framework, but the AF hasn't really defended anything about the topic? Yeah, my, the first thing that I think that teams need to be prepared to say is that, well, no, let me, let me, before I start talking about that, making a topicality argument that isn't necessarily framework, because uh, framework for me means that they needed to talk about a particular situation for what the role of the ballot is, whether that is, you know, we have to defend federal government action, we have to defend, uh, you know, the, the, we are policymakers making a decision. That is, that is the framework argument. In addition to that, I think teams need to make a T argument that whatever their performance is, whatever there is, it needs to be in the direction of the topic. So they need to defend through their performance that we should explore or develop space. They have to operate in that general direction in order to guarantee preparedness. They can do whatever they want to performatively. They don't even have to defend the United States. They just have to develop or explore in some particular way. Uh, and being prepared to go for that T argument, and then when they make all of their framework, like, you limit what we can do and how we can challenge and what role we can play. And say, like, no, you can do all of that. You just have to meet the terms of the resolution on an academic level has been an argument that I've always found incredibly persuasive that I've seen some teams go for in some college rounds against performative teams that, you know, on the democracy assistance topic, you, you can do whatever you want to, you can perform whatever you want to be, but you still have to defend democracy assistance or democracy or being for Egypt. Um, yeah, and that is a check on the resolution, just sort of like a separate T argument. And reading both is really useful because it allows you to, distinguish between what you allow and what you don't allow. I think that uh, Paul Mabry, who debated for Fort Hayes and is now a, a coach at uh, James Madison, uh, used to call this argument resolutionality, is that you don't have to be topical per se, but you have to be resolutional, and you have to engage the resolution, and that should be a, a minimum uh, standard that we require for the affirmative uh, and that's certainly, I think, an argument that has some persuasive merit uh, for like a middle ground um, meeting halfway with performance teams. Uh, I also think that one – I think it's tough to perhaps generate a generic strategy against many performance teams. Uh, but one of the strategies that I think would be best is like actually listening to paying attention to – what the performance team is saying and finding ways to engage that argument um, uh, and doing research. Like, and it, it, it may well, very well, mean that you deviate from traditional um, topic-specific uh, research and education and things like that, but uh, to actually do some research about the things they talk about uh, and, and choose to in, engage them at that level is, is possible. Um, although it it is sort of difficult given to the need to balance time between um, other apps that are actually topical um, versus performance apps that maybe don't speak to the resolution as much. Herndon, I, I, I don't understand, well, either of you, I don't understand this resolutionality thing at all. Can you give me an example of someone who wouldn't meet traditional T, but would meet your resolutionality thing so that you would, like, list as why you're not abusive? Sure. Uh, I, I can only give college topic examples, so if that's not helpful for the audience, you know. Uh, but a couple of the Oklahoma teams 
make the argument that um, they performatively say that you should reject uh, the U.S. role abroad, that it's uh, both oriental and colonialist, that we would be involved in how other countries form and develop democracy. They read, you know, poems and music uh, suggesting that this is important to engage in. And so one line of arguments is framework. It says, like, you have to defend the federal government. You have to engage in policymaking, walls, informed citizenry, that sort of stuff. But a second argument is uh, that their performance is, in fact, anti-resolutional, anti-topical, because it is anti-democracy assistance and switch side debate and just sort of like being affirmative means that they have to find a way to defend both democracy and democracy assistance in whatever performative way that they want to. They have to be in the direction of the revolution, and that's important for Brown. It's important for the limits on the topic, because if they're not in the direction of the revolution, they can do everything. Uh, the affirmative will respond to that in ways that are just sort of like, you know, framework, you, you know, you can't limit us down in what we want to say, and you think that particular forms of evidence are good, and that you force us into a, you pigeonhole us into having to defend the federal government, we're not part of the federal government, we don't want to defend that, and then it's sort of a, a slew of classic K framework arguments, and then the T argument can be situated as separate, which is sort of like a, this is not a framework argument, you can debate with whatever evidence, whatever style, whatever argument you want to, you can do anything, you don't have to defend a plan, but the general thesis of your performance must be in the direction of the resolution. And, and you pick a word in the resolution, and you define it in as broad and encompassing ways that you can, and find ways that the affirmative performance is not moved in that general direction, and why that is important, not for a stylistic reason, but in just sort of like an educational, engaging in a debate reason. Is your response but, to that that you don't think that, that the impact is different from framework? Yeah, I mean, I guess aren't all their, like, rules bad still going to apply to that? Yeah, you have to answer. If they're just, like, straight up rules are bad, tease, uh, RBI, we, we shouldn't have to meet any rule, you've still got to beat them on that, they, that there is a rule that you have to give us the right to rejoin her. But most of those rules are bad or indicts of traditional debate, so if you're talking about the wise evidence that's very popular that people read, or it's indicted to just sort of like a general theory. And so at a, I guess you are you do still have to defend, you know, that they have to take a position in the ultimate. But that's always been the easy part of framework. The hard part of framework has always been tying it to them having to take a particular position on what their relationship to the federal government is or what they had to do in order to be a topical affirmative and that sort of stuff. I think this just draws the line as a, at a much smaller, in a much smaller, more defendable way. Right. I think that Hernan's argument is sort of like to say, you know, you don't have to defend U.S. federal government action. You don't have to defend like immediate implementation or anything like that. But at some level, you may have to defend that uh, democratic change occurring in one of the countries in the topic is a good idea, or that. Um, and you know some aspect is that, and to to say you know like the U.S. should just have zero role whatsoever in it is not exactly focusing on what the topic or the debate topic should be about. And so um, the the area of the topic is democratic change amongst a select number of countries in the Middle East, and so you should be on point in talking about that, even if you aren't going to defend a specific implementation of a specific policy by the U.S. federal government, you need to be talking about the resolution in a in a somewhat positive way, like not saying the U.S. should cut all of its assistance to the Middle East or anything like that. I mean, I guess I get that you all are making a well-reasoned, logical argument. I just don't think that that ever helps when you're debating these teams. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Uh, I, my, I guess my second suggestion, this is something you and I have talked about in the past, is the negative needs to have a defense of a counter-explanation for why the world is the way it is the way, except the way most project teams do it. And the easiest and best example of that has always been, will probably always be, capitalism is the explanation, not yours, because all of these performative teams have so far had in common, they're saying... This the world is messed up. This is the way that it works. We fix that. We our performance changes that. 
And so the one classic example is you just have to get ready to defend that you are wrong. Capitalism is actually the explanation. Uh, as long as you win, that capitalism is the more proximate cause for the problems that exist. And you can win that the notion of performance is a link to the larger neoliberal order of the way the world works and the alternative is a better method of, of capturing their performance. That's always been a sort of a quick fix slash if you're going to be a two in and you're going to a tournament with their performative teams, you need to be prepared to give a two in our own alt of capitalism with, uh, you know, you've already said that I thought we already agreed that the uh, role of the ballot is to combat capitalism, right? That's true. That is a rule now. I heard that uh, rule. I, and it's not I'm, capitalism, feminism. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I assume that there are other. I don't assume there are other explanations for the way the world works that are generic negative positions that they could use to debate uh, performance teams. I think that if you were debating a particularly um, savvy uh, performance team, you will often struggle to find link arguments to stock positions. So. A lot of this debate needs to occur not necessarily in a, at an evidence-based level, but it occurs in sort of cross-examination uh, and in the debate rounds when, uh, like, no-link arguments are trying to be formed. And just really spending an effective amount of time arguing, you said this, you linked to this argument, kind of is where the debate needs to focus, and you have to be very emphatic about a, a lot of times. And for me, it's where a lot of those debates are lost, is when a team uh, glosses over sort of the link level. And any good performance team is probably going to be uh, very good at dodging link arguments, and you have to be on your toes about winning that debate. What do y'all think? I've kind of come to the conclusion that even though teams theoretically should be reading these apps so that they don't uh, have to debate disads, that you should just read a disad against them because none of them go for no link. They always just go for dumb critiques of the impact anyway. Like if you read a hegemony good disad against them, none of them are going for no link. They're all going for like hegemony is bad. So it seems like you can just bypass framework altogether because they just read these K impact turns and then win hegemony is good. Are we talking about like a true performance team or like a team that just reads a somewhat critical app with like a plain text or no plain text or and all of the above? Um, not sure. Um, perhaps that could be a, a strategy. I, I think I could also see some of them saying, you know, we didn't say anything about hedge in our in our one AC. Like I don't. No I do one. think that that's a link. If you're not with us, you're against us. <laughs> Absolutely, it is. <laughs> that's the kind of resolve I'm talking about when I say push the link level, Scott. You you got to be on your toes. Harden, I, agree, disagree. Yeah, read it, read it. Most of the most of the in these most of the in these that people's one in C's are just too small. And so the 2AC gets to respond to their 40-block framework arguments and their answers to stuff. So it's worth reading a DA because if they read the K of the hedge impact, just read offense against it. And then, damn, win the debate on, you know, hedge reps good. They've given you the link argument or whatever. Or something that you have actually good offensive K cards for. Read a DA to get there and just hope that they read the impact. Uh, that would be my number one suggestion, is find more arguments that you can read in the one and see that are potentially responsive, just to make the arguments that you want to go for even better. I don't know that I agree with using hegemony instrumentally like that instead of defending it because you believe in it. Well, obviously, uh, you need to believe in it, because Veterans Day is coming up, and they did not die uh, for us to mock the good that this country does for both us and the world. Uh, in fact, they're doing so has put us all at risk because we need them on those walls. Uh, well, and I apologize if you thought that I was suggesting that hegemony is both key and necessary to the value to life. So, Scott, let me ask you this question. Um, uh, it's a discussion that we've had when debating not necessarily performance teams, but critical teams. Uh, do you believe that there's, there's a, a difference? difference? Yeah, I think so. Um, do you think that there's 
an advantage to reading more than one disad, or should you just read one disad with one impact that you feel particularly comfortable defending? And I mean, if it's a team that. that reads really separate, like your hedge impact, they're going to read 1K into your warming disad, they're going to read something totally different, then yeah, I think that there can be an advantage. If they're just going to say, oh, ignoring gender is a positive everything, then it seems like it doesn't really do that much for you. Gotcha. What's going on over there? Turned in his typing. Sorry, I stopped. Uh, all right. Uh, I think we're we're starting to run a little long here, so let's wrap it up there. Unless y'all have any closing thoughts. Mm. No, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, Arden, you haven't had a thought the whole time, so let's <laughs> come up with one now. Is... But I didn't. I didn't want to let the listeners down by ending with absolutely having absolutely no thoughts. So I was gonna. We're going to try to hit them up with something. Uh, but, uh, oh, James Herndon, letting listeners down for years on the 3NR podcast. <laughs> um, all right, well, thanks for joining me. This has been Scott Phillips along with uh, James Herndon and Whit Whitmore. <laughs>